God, thank you for your word, that you've kept it alive all of these years. Thanks that we can dig into it, and it speaks to us even today. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Amen. So we're working through Ecclesiastes, this Old Testament letter written by King Solomon. He refers to himself as a preacher or a teacher. We know that he is looking for meaning, and he is looking to figure this, this whole mess of this world out. In my study this past week, I came across this guy by the name of Don Richardson, I believe his name. He was a missionary in the 50s, and uh, Don went to Dutch New Guinea to evangelize the tribes there. Now, one of the tribes that he came up against or came to, they were kind of a ferocious people. Um, trickery and bribery, and they would just kill you if they didn't like you type of, of people. And so as these missionaries are trying to integrate into their, into their tribe to share the story of Jesus, what he learned was that in this area, when, when tribes would fight against each other, this one specific tribe, if they wanted to make peace with another tribe, that the chief would offer his son to that other tribe as a peace child. Well, Richardson saw this as just kind of in line with the story of the gospel, that God the Father would offer his own son that we would be made, we can have peace with God. But it got him to start thinking about, is there, is, are there other tribes that kind of enter into the stream of how the Bible presents itself in the gospel? And so he started to study and he studied the Karen people in, in Burma. And what he found were that, that these people believed in many gods, but they had one supreme God. And they believed, their legend believed, that this one God one day was going to reveal to them this, this long-lost book. And in this book, the words would allow the people to become uh, free, that, that they would end their oppression. And then he, he pressed in further, and he, and he looked at a tribe in Borneo. And what he found was this one tribe in Borneo, once a year, the leaders of the tribe, the elders, they would gather the people together. And everybody would bring a symbol of all their mistakes, of all their sins, of all the things that they've done wrong over the entire year. And they would put it in this little boat. And then the elders of the tribe would push the boat out into the river, and they would watch their mistakes float away. It's kind of like the scapegoat in the Old Testament when the high priest would lay his hands on the top of the goat as a symbol of putting the sin of the people there and then take the goat out into the wilderness and they would be free from their sin. But this got Richardson thinking a little bit. And what he said was, this is proof of Ecclesiastes 11, that he has put eternity into the hearts of of human beings, that, that everybody kind of knows that there's something wrong in this world, something that's broken. We're all kind of searching for meaning. We're trying to figure this mess out. It's something we can't seem to get there, but we're, we're, it's not for a lack of trying. And there's, there's this sense in us that we want to be forgiven. We all know when we mess up and make mistakes. He said, this is proof that God has put eternity into the human heart. Something is wrong. 
Now, fast forward 2017, you go to Amazon.com and you type into the search in Amazon.com, self-help. Over 680,000 titles will come up so that you can try to help yourself become a better you, a better person. Everybody seems to have the idea of how to fix this mess, yet the mess never seems to get fixed. Because inherently, at the core, deep down inside, we all have this sense that something is very, very broken. And we want to know why. We want to know the meaning of all this. Why, why is the world the way it is? God has put eternity, a longing for something more, in the heart of people. And we wrestle with that. And we just can't seem to get there on our own. And this is what the writer of Ecclesiastes, he, he's finished his poem. Anybody sing the bird song last week? Turn, 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 like all week long. I got a text message Monday morning at 6.30. Somebody was up all night long with it in their head, but I digress. Anyway, so, so he's finished with this poem. There's a season for everything. God has created seasons. God's in control of all of this. God is sovereign over all of this. And there's seasons for building up and tearing down. There's a season to be born. There's a season to die. There's a season to, to build. There's a season to, to break down, to plant, to pull up. And now, after he's finished this poem, he's going to get back to this idea of work. Because he's been really wrestling with work. Is it worthwhile working? And so he writes this. Maybe he doesn't. There he is. We're going to read the first couple verses. This is Ecclesiastes 3. What do workers gain from their toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. What do workers gain from their toil? He's really wrestling with this idea. Is it worthwhile working hard? And now it's a rhetorical question because we know that from an earthly perspective, just from a humanistic point of view, it ain't worth nothing. You can get, you can build, you can try all you want, but from an earthly perspective, there's not a lot of meaning to it. But he's not as negative now. Maybe he's had his coffee, he's made new toast, and Monday morning has passed to Monday afternoon. And now he's writing with a sense of, of hope and encouragement because look at verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He makes everything beautiful and it's time. You know, I, I speak to people uh, many times outside of the church, and some have this sense of resentment that God is in control, that, that God is ultimately sovereign over this whole mess. Like, like if, if you wanted Hillary, God said, no, I want Donald's. I don't know why. I'm just saying, because God, God didn't wake up that morning and go, oh my goodness, Donald's in. How did this happen? God is in control of all of it. Every moment of our lives, he's in control of. And that's, that's the whole idea of sovereignty, and we don't fully understand it. But some people resent that, because it takes us out of the driver's seat, ultimately, and puts God there. And so our life is not just about us getting, me, I. It becomes more of a part of a bigger picture. It becomes about his, his kingdom. And the teacher, the writer of this, sees beauty in God controlling everything because he makes everything beautiful in its time. 
Everything happens at exactly the right time because God is involved in everything, intimately involved in everything. Nothing happens. Nothing happens outside of his will, outside of his sovereignty, outside of his control. And this is a statement, like we said last week, that should put hope into our hearts. But, you know, it's a little frustrating at times. And when you think of the word, when, when, when you look at the word beautiful, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Originally, this word starts out as to look at something beautiful. Like if you look at my wife, you know that she's beautiful. That, that, so, so it's a visual thing. But it's actually morphed into something throughout the scripture and I think throughout our culture that it's not only a visual thing, but it's something that becomes good and pleasing and right. Like the soul or the heart of my wife is beautiful. You can't see it, but there's something in there that, that's just good and pleasing and inviting. And so what this is saying is God's timing is beautiful. Like, like God's timing is appropriate. God's timing is good. God's timing is perfect. He's always right on time, no matter what. He knows the time to break things down. He knows the time to build things up. He has made and is making everything beautiful. And this is not just speaking about how he makes the world, how he made the world. This is talking about how he is involved in the world, how he's involved in our lives. Everything happens when it's supposed to happen. <clears throat> if that don't put a, the crawl in your crutch, I mean, because sometimes that can be very frustrating. No matter how random things feel, no matter how it breaks us inside, everything happens when they're supposed to happen because God is in control. Even our choices, we make our choices because God is involved in our lives, not in some, some puppeteer pulling the strings and we're little puppets. But that's, that's the, the depth of God's sovereignty, that, that he is in control even when we can make our own decisions. Nothing thwarts his plan. Nothing gets him off keel because he's God. And so I guess the question we have to ask ourselves if God is in control of his creation and nothing really happens outside of him, then do you trust God's seasons in your own life? Do you trust that he is working in your life? Do you trust that in your life he's making everything beautiful in its time? Because that's what the scripture says, everything. In the Hebrew, it means everything. Everything. He makes everything beautiful in its time. God's agenda is always the best agenda, even if it doesn't feel like it's the best. Sometimes doors are closed in our lives and other doors are opened. I mean, many of us can think of a time in our life where we wanted to go this way, but something happened and we had to go this way and come to find out this way was much better than that way. I heard stories uh, from 9-11. People that missed the train, woke up late, the alarm didn't go off, kids were sick, they were sick. They didn't go to work that day to the Twin Towers. God's agenda was better than what they thought. So what started off as frustration ended up saving their lives. When my father, 40 years ago, he worked for Sikorsky, and he was an electronic technician on 
the, the Blackhawk. Back then it wasn't called the Blackhawk helicopter. And he would fly on these test flights. And he would sit in front of this big panel and he would do whatever he would do. But one morning, my mother got sick. She got so sick that she had to be rushed to the hospital. And so my father had to call in to work. Well, that day he was scheduled to fly uh, in a test flight. And so he takes my mom to the hospital, doesn't go to work. The test flight that he was scheduled to be on ends up crashing and everybody dies. God's agenda sometimes, many times, dare I say all the time, is much better, even when we don't understand it. Yet, we know that, right? I mean, he's God, so we understand that, but we don't understand his timing. That's the human perspective and that lies, the, and lies the, the frustrations that we have. And it's not lost on the teacher. Because again, he says this. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. This is our dilemma. He puts this eternity thing in our heart. We know that there's more. We know that there's a bigger picture. We want to figure this thing out, but yet we can't figure out God. We just don't know everything, and he is never going to let us know everything. In fact, I hear people say, well, when we get to heaven, we'll know everything. No, because that will make us like God, and that's never going to happen. So we're never going to know everything. And so we live in this this, this space, like we live in between time and, and eternity. Eternity is that thing that, that stands outside of time. Like we can measure time, but we can't measure eternity. Eternity just is. Like it doesn't have an end. It never had a beginning. But time has a beginning. Time has an end. Time is finite. Eternity is infinite. And, but we live in this awkward place. And the tension is we're bound by time. Minutes. Hours, days, weeks, months, years. We're all kind of, kind of stuck in this beginning and end thing. But when the teacher says, God has put this sense of eternity in our hearts, he has gifted us with this desire to know. What's the purpose? Why? Why are we here? Why am I here? I had a conversation this morning uh, with someone, and, and they're a teacher, and he asked his class, is there a purpose to life? And a third of his class said, there is no purpose. And I thought, how sad that there's a generation giving up, pressing in and trying to figure this thing out. They're ignoring the sense of eternity that God has put into our hearts. See, God has the complete view, end to beginning, beginning to end. God sees the day you were born and the day you die at the same time and everything in between. But we only have this little, small point of view. And that's all we can see is, is just this myopic, in front of us point of view. And because of that, he has set this thing in our hearts, this thing called eternity. He has made us thinking beings and we're pressing in trying to figure it out and if we don't give up I believe that that sense of eternity in our hearts points us leads us back to the things of God don't give up the search 
Don't give, just throw in the towel and settle for something. Keep looking for the truth because if you continue to look for the truth, you will come to the truth. And who is the truth? The truth is Jesus Christ. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Solomon experimented with everything, wine, women, and song. He spared himself nothing. If he wanted it, he took it. He made it. He built it. And yet, he came up short. Like nothing gave him meaning. Nothing was able to fulfill that, that, that thing. But now there's hope in his, in his voice, in his writing. Because now he says, wait, there, there's, something, there's something different. There's something else. And that something else is God. See, we look beyond this world and we look to the sacred and the holy. And so instead of giving up our desire to understand receive or recognize that the want that's in you, that thing that just never quiets down, is God has set something in you so that you would continue to search for him and make it to him. He's calling, wooing, loving us back into a relationship with him. It's proof that we have been created for something much bigger than this this world, this, this thing with the, the, the grind we go through every day, punching the time clock, mowing the lawn. We've, made, we've been made for something much bigger. Listen to the words of C.S. Lewis in, in his writing of Mere Christianity. He writes this. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy... The most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfies it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it to suggest the real thing. And he goes on to say that the real thing is God that he has gifted us with this longing, this tension that lives within us so that we won't give up our search for him. They will continue to press into that search to find him. Satisfaction in life will fully come to you when you have a personal relationship with God the Father through his son, Jesus Christ. That's what the scripture teaches. And so the teacher goes on. He says, I know there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in their toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so people will fear him. So verse 12 and verse 14, they start out with those two words, I know. The teacher has figured some stuff out. He has been really searching, pressing in. He has figured some things out. He's made some conclusions, and he wants to share them with us. There are two very important insights. The first one is about doing the business of God, and the second one is trusting that God is in control. God is in control of everything. So first, verse 12, this is about using the time that we have here on this earth in service to the kingdom of God. That we would, we would use the time we have here on earth to serve our creator. Pretty much verses 12 and 13, he said, listen, it's time to get busy 
while there's still time, while you are still breathing and living here on this planet, let's start getting busy with the work of God. And there should be this, this heart of happiness and gratitude in us, a, a posture of joy that we can do God's good work, that he picks us, these broken human beings, with all our issues and with all our junk, that he has good work for us to do. That's God's grace to us. It's his love to us, and we should take pleasure in that. You know, I thought maybe we can read, maybe we should read verse 12 and 13 like in the first person. Like, say it like this. I know that there is nothing better for me than to be happy and to do good work while, while I live, that I may eat and drink and find satisfaction in my toil. This is the gift of God for me. What if we really personalized those two verses and took those verses to heart? What kind of footprint will we make in the world for the kingdom? What kind of good would the Christian rise up to do knowing that God has called us to do good work and that we've been released to do good work, that we have a calling, each one has a calling on our lives? How often would you be sharing the gospel, good news, to say, hey man, you know, you don't have to walk down that path because Jesus loves you. He wants to forgive you if you would just put your faith in him. We're not always going to be happy. Happiness is, is very circumstantial. Some days I'm happy, some days I'm not. But we, the gospel says that we can know joy, like that deep down joy inside. That when life is difficult, when, when everything seems to be falling apart, when the job gets lost, when there's no more money, when the kids are misbehaving, whatever it is, we can know joy because in God's grace, we have been considered worthy to work for the creator. For the creator. He considers us worthy to work for his kingdom. The phrase to do good, it has moral and, and ethical connotations to it that we would do the good work that God has given each and every single person here to do. Each and every single person. Not to earn salvation, not to earn his love, not to earn grace, but because we have been saved, because we are loved, because we've been gifted this abundant grace and we've been forgiven of our sin, we've been reconciled back to the Father through the cross of Jesus Christ and our response is to work the work that God has given each and every one of us. It's, our, it's out of our love for him that we would work and do the work for him. And so we should be doing good work at home, that we would love and serve the people that we live with, husbands and wives and wives and husbands and children and an extended family, that we would do good work at our jobs, that you would take that mundane thing that you're gonna hate going to tomorrow morning and that you would be Jesus to those around you and that you would do good work and that it would change your attitude a little bit, that you're not working for your boss ultimately. Yeah, he strokes the check, but you work for God and God has given you good work, that you would do good work in your church, that you would serve in your spiritual giftings. You know, as we grow as a church family, as we have more and more children coming to our church, we need nursery workers, we need teachers, we need helpers. 
Would you be willing to serve, to answer the call that God has put on you to do the good work of ministering to your church family? And we, we should all be doing the good work in our communities, wherever God has planted you. Meriden, Waterbury, Naugatuck, Hamden, Cheshire, Southington, whatever it is, that we would be a voice in our community, that we would be a voice in our neighborhood for the gospel, the good news. God has given us all good work to do. And we should be gratefully accepting the blessings. We're encouraged to recognize the blessing. I know that there's nothing better for people than to be happy and do good while they live, that each may eat and drink. This is not about gluttony and drunkenness. This is about living life and enjoying life. Like you would enjoy life when it's, it's, it's good and, you know, it's going to be nice. Some of you like the heat, but the sun is finally shining for, and it's not raining. And, and, and so enjoy life today. Enjoy life tomorrow. Even when it hits the fan and things go south, still know that God is working and he's making everything beautiful in its time, even if it feels broken. That you would enjoy life a little bit. The second insight that the teacher has for us is in verse 14. He says, I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken away from it. The teacher is telling us, you got to let God be God. We have to come to a place in our heart where we just go, he's in control. He is in control. No matter how out of control it feels, he is in control time and eternity and everything he does he will do in the appropriate exact time and everything he does will endure forever ever no one can add to it no one can take away from it he is god and i wonder i wonder if that truth is a source of hope in your life or is it a source of frustration or disappointment why does God do what he does? It says, so that people will fear him. Now, that's not like God's going, okay, I'm going to scare you into submission. I'm going to threaten that I'm going to kill you unless you do what I say. Now, he can, I mean, because he's God. He can evaporate each one of us right here and now. But this is not about that kind of fear. This is about trusting in his foreknowledge of everything. Like, he knows what tomorrow brings. He knows the words before you even speak them, before you're even, they're even in your brain. Do you believe, the fear of the Lord is to believe that he knows our present challenges and our future challenges. He knows our present joy and our future joy. He knows the time of our death and everything in between. He knows what the future holds for us. He knows exactly what's in your heart right now. Trusting that is the fear of the Lord. To fear God is to know that no matter what, he's in control. No matter what. When we don't understand it, he's in control. When we don't agree with it, he's in control. When we're downright angry about it, he's in control. You know, and I, I wrestle with that. I do. I, sometimes, it, like I've said this before, like if God would just get on my timeline, my life would be so much easier. 
and yours would be too because I'm that amazing. And, 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 I, and I, just, I just think and I wrestle with this whole God's in control thing. But I have to come to the conclusion, I, I've come to the summation of it all that God is God and I am not. And he is going to do, and he is working in me, and he's working around me, and he is making everything beautiful in its time. And so those times that we don't understand, those times that, that we don't get it, it should not cause us to walk away from him, but to pursue him in deeper and deeper ways, because he has put eternity in our hearts. And we long for that connection with him. If you look at verse 15, it says, Whatever has already been and what will be has been before, and God will call the past to account. It's very reminiscent of chapter 1. Remember he said, everything that is, it's already been, blah, blah, blah. It's all meaningless. It's like chasing after the wind. He was a real bummer in chapter 1. But now there's a sense of hope to his writing because he's pointing everything back to who God is. In the sovereignty of God, he is in control of everything. We should not be bummed out. We should be hopeful because he's got our back. Always has our back. And that beautiful line in the the last, it says, and God will call the past to account. Now, there's a sense of judgment in that that line. Everybody that walks this planet will be judged before God on one of two things. Either you accepted by faith his son Jesus Christ or you rejected by, by your whatever faith in what something else, Jesus Christ. That's what we will be judged upon. But it doesn't, just, it doesn't just remain there. See, God is calling the past to account. God is redeeming everything that's been broken in the past. The garden, it went south. It went south quick. And God's plan is to bring it all back to redemption, to make it perfect once again. All that has been lost in this world, God is redeeming. And he's looking to redeem humanity. It's his desire that not one would perish. He has given this free gift. And that's why he gave us Jesus. Because he's redeeming and he's bringing it all back and he's making it all new. It says that God's work will endure forever, which means that the work God has given you to do matters, and it will endure forever. That's why I continually tell you over and again that it matters the way you live your life. It matters the things that you do and the words that you speak. It matters you ignoring God, even though he knows you're going to ignore him, but he still continues to work in your life to make everything beautiful in its time. He has put eternity in our hearts that we won't give up pressing in, that we would look for him while, while it's still day. And will you trust that he's got you? He's got you. I know that's hard for some people, I know that some of you might have been just given up. Like, he's, he didn't show up. It's too late. I'm in this mess. Now I have to figure how to get out of it. It's not true. God is with you. And, and, and if you're really struggling with this God in control thing, 
and that he's making, he's working in you, even though it seems like it's all falling apart, if you're really wrestling with that, then, then don't leave without somebody praying over you today. We're going to have some people up here at the cross that want to pray over you, that want to pray with you. Don't leave with just letting that thing linger out there and, and just giving up. Let the eternity that he has set in your heart push you toward him. and Stop being stubborn and trying to pull away from him. God is redeeming all things and he is making everything beautiful in its time, Amen. including you. you. Including you. God, I want to thank you for the love that you have for your church, for your people, for this world, for your creation. And now, strengthen us to do the good work that you have given us. With no excuses, let us be on fire with passion for it. And let us, one life at a, one life at a time, change this world. Thank you that you love us. Thank you for the gift of Jesus. Amen. 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 Again, if you would like to make a donation to Tony and Roxanne, the basket is over there. I love you guys. I will see you next week.